This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, November 9th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, a holistic approach to conflict and trauma. Green Grant's deadline approaches. Clue brings laughter and murder to the palm. And a mountain weather forecast. Telluride's community conversations dive into the tough topics. A collaboration between the Wilkinson Public Library, Tri-County Health Network, and many other local organizations, the goal is to create a space to make the hard conversations hopefully a little easier. This month's community conversation will look at bullying, but more specifically, a holistic approach to conflict and trauma. The origin of of bullying as a verb really comes from the noun, which is which is labeling, right? Um, somebody as a bully, so it kind of creates this dynamic where somebody is being potentially taken out of their full humanity and just identified as a bully. That's Rachel Sharp, and really wanting to think about where what our goals are. For the conversations and if what we want to do is reduce violence and then really thinking about how we get there and oftentimes that comes from origins of conflict and being able to really identify conflict and what healthy conflict can look like and what the distinctions between you know conflict and violence are and then there's studies that show when somebody's kind of been identified in a certain way oftentimes there's reluctance to want to shift that, um, if that's how they're seen. Sharp is a facilitator, consultant, and theater practitioner. She, along with Tempe Hamilton, a licensed clinical social worker, will be leading the conversation. Hamilton is the founder of Phases of Self-Ascension, an organization committed to creating nourishing spaces for healing in the Black community. I was born and raised in Alabama, um, born and raised in the South. Uh, my grandmother was a sharecropper. And so I always like to share that, like, the work for me when it comes to equity work and healing work, especially within the Black community, um, is personal for me as a Black woman, as a Black queer woman. It's also ancestral and it's also very spiritual. Hamilton says the goal of the conversation is to start working through ideas of conflict and violence, not only in an intellectual capacity, but allowing participants to engage with their bodies and emotions as well. Historically, We've been connected to our bodies. Like my ancestors, they were already doing the things and they were connected to their bodies. And even as a clinician, uh, as a mental health clinician, oftentimes, typically people come to me initially, if they find me on psychology today, they're thinking that they're going to come to a talk therapy session and they want to try to resolve uh, challenges in their head alone. Um, And I feel like one of the most rewarding things that I can offer myself and empower other people to access is what we have like in our bodies, like moving beyond just thinking through the things. Sharp notes the conversation won't be a dance or theater class, but she says creative expression can help people understand and act in different ways. We know, factually, we cannot do the work of navigating conflict in healthy ways, of addressing racism in in all kinds of isms in our community with our heads alone. Like we we know that's not that's not gonna have the impact, right? So it's not just like how do we get out of our heads? It's like, no, actually to be effective for this work to be effective, we do have to actually tap into, you know, our our somatic knowing and our 
and our feelings, our emotional knowing. Sharp says they will engage in a number of community agreements and exercises so participants can show up as their full selves. We're very much into creating a liberated space where folks are in choice about how much they engage and to what degree and and where they are with the work. So um, wanting folks to know that there's, you know, there will come check it out. And if you feel, you know, uncertain about engaging in a certain way, check it out, watch for a little while and see what you think. Um, The invitation is open. Hamilton adds they're going to be creating with the people in the room. I'm a visual person and the visual came to me as a stew. And so we'll have people coming in with different fields, different spaces. The, The conversation is happening later in the afternoon. People will have different experiences throughout the day. And once we have those ingredients, we're holding that space, we're creating that communal stew for us to kind of concoct and sit in together and allowing us to be able to sit through that and be in that and engage in that. It's okay to do the things uncomfortable. This month's community conversation, looking at a holistic approach to conflict and trauma and bullying, will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Tuesday, November 14th from 5 to 7 p.m. The event is open to the community in English and Spanish. There will be food and childcare provided. The latest round of green grants is upon us. And in order to be considered for funding in 2024, you must fill out an intent to apply pre-application before end of day on Friday, November 10th. The longstanding program funds energy efficiency projects in Telluride and is a joint effort of the town and EcoAction partners. Back in July, when the pre-applications opened, Kodo News profiled one of this year's green grantees, and with the deadline now looming, we bring you that story again today. There it is! <laughs> What's it? Joanna K. now greets me at her front door in one of Telluride's leafy summer neighborhoods. But we're not going inside. Ta-da. Yep, it opens, it closes. Today, the door is the reason for my visit. It's a handsome sight, solid wood with a big pane of glass up top, and fine bevels, panels, and decorations adding to its Victorian flair. This house, I think, is 1898. So it has a, a lot of really fine detail that you don't see doors made this way anymore at all. Despite their character, the two doors on Canal's front porch are not original. They're replicas crafted to mimic the pair that came before. Canal recalls that the old doors had to go. It was clear that the house was old and drafty and windy and the first thing that needed to be solved were the doors. However, then we ran into the Hark problem of they had to be restored historically with this beautiful detail that these 200-year-old doors originally had. Hark is the Historic and Architectural Review Committee, which oversees historic preservation in Telluride. Canav's house is in the historic residential district, so any changes to the exterior had to replicate what came before. Suddenly, replacing the front doors was going to require a custom job by a fine craftsman. Which was bringing the cost up much higher 
And so I thought it was a great opportunity to apply for a green grant to see if we could help the envelope of our home, seal the doors, keep the heat in. And a green grant she received. For the unfamiliar, green grants are an annual program run by the town of Telluride and Eco Action Partners, which doles out money to local businesses, homeowners, organizations, and others to fund greenhouse gas reduction projects. Looking at her front door, Kanao recalls not only the cost of the doors themselves, but also the installation, the preservation of the transom windows, the hardware, and so on. So it, it definitely added up, and the Green Grant really helped us make this possible if, if we didn't have the help to replace these extremely expensive doors, we probably would have left it drafty and just kept cranking up the heat. But now we know that we have a, a really solid envelope and no heat is escaping. The following year, Kana went on to apply for another green grant, this time to upgrade the stove which heats her home. She received that grant as well. What's the two-time winner's advice to anyone who might be interested in applying? Well, first of all, I wouldn't be intimidated by it at all because um, you don't have to have any experience of writing a grant before. You're just basically telling them what you need, why it needs repair, and... Uh, what the cost of the project will be. In a phone interview, Zoe Denall, assistant manager for the town of Telluride and a lead on the town's environmental initiatives, agrees the green grants are for everyone. If you've ever been thinking, again, of doing some kind of upgrade to your home or, um, you know, installing EV charging, you can get an EV charging vehicle. So many different avenues of success um, are part of this process. So, before, we're really trying to build up the number of people that we get to apply because this can really help so many people succeed, um, and we'd love to see this program grow. Telluride has pledged to drastically cut its greenhouse gas emissions as part of its climate action plan, and the Green Grant program could prove an essential tool in meeting those goals. This year, the town has added a pre-application process which will guide users through a set of questions and connect them with a whole number of potential funding opportunities. Of the pre-application, Denal says... It's also kind of an education tool to really show people what's out there. You know, of course, the town of Telluride has these amazing environmental goals, but so does the state, so does the federal government. So there is a lot of funding opportunity that we can collectively educate the public on and help them utilize to further their goals. The pre-application is currently open and will be available into the early fall. Awards can range anywhere from $500 to $40,000. For more information, visit bit.ly slash totgreengrants or visit the Eco Action Partners website. We're going to start from the beginning Angela Watkins, theater director at the Telluride High School, is down in the orchestra pit at the Palm Theater, readying a stage full of students for a run-through of the fall play, Clue, on stage. It's a black comedy of sorts, with touches of physical humor and political thriller, and it features a colorful cast of 15 students, supported by nearly as many students backstage and up in the lighting booth. Are you ready? Yeah, I am. Did everybody check their communication? 
Amidst the bustle of an active rehearsal, I duck into the green room to meet some of the characters who will take it to the stage this Friday night. First up, the dubious Plum, played by Catherine Pumiali. So I'm Professor Plum, which has been really interesting to play because it's very like, I felt wrong because he's a very like morally wrong character. By one example, Professor Plum says Pumiali has a penchant for inappropriate touching, particularly of the party's female members. So one thing that I have to really keep myself is to make sure like consent as always, because I have to uh, touch women where usually it's unacceptable to touch them because... You know, production. So I feel like consent has been a very big thing with my character. Working through the gaffes with other cast members has been a process, Pumiali notes. She says while she's done a number of productions before, this one comes with some firsts. I've done the shows since I moved here, so I've done like four shows by now. But this is like my first time getting like a main character role. Actually, my first time being a man, which has been so nice. I've always wanted to be a man since I was a kid. Pumiali as Plum is not the only gender-bending character in the bunch. Charlotte Guest appears as Colonel Mustard from behind an enormous mustache and a pair of bushy gray eyebrows. Guest notes this getup is for her a different sort of appearance. I actually just got out of a production that I aired on October 19th through 22nd, Meet Me in St. Louis, where I played Judy Garland's character and sang the entire show. So this is a little different. (laughs) Being dripped out in like a mustache and um, (laughs) talking in an accent and be doing man things. It's different, but I love it. The script for Clue on stage is based on the 1985 film, which itself is based, of course, on the iconic murder mystery board game. The film tanked when first released, but has since developed a passionate cult following. And the theatrical adaptation by Sandy Rustin is a fast-paced mashup of murder, slapstick, red scare, political history, and comedic relief. Right this way. Backstage, I ask Miss Scarlett, played by Savannah Bays, why folks should offer up a chunk of their weekend to be transported to a dinner party at a faraway mansion on a stormy night. Yeah, you should come because, I mean, six of the cast members die and <gasps> eight of the cast members are killers. Eight, seven. Seven. It's seven, sweet. Seven? Oh, yeah. See it all go down at the Palm this weekend. Clue on stage opens Friday, November 10th with a 7 p.m. show. It runs again Saturday evening before a final 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday the 12th. Find tickets at the door or at tellyouridepalm.com. I'm merely a humble butler. Oh, what exactly do you do? I bustle, sir. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The KOTO Ski Swap is about to drop. You can't have a ski town without a ski swap. That's KOTO Executive Director Kara Pallone noting the swap is a true community event. KOTO is so stoked to be putting on this iconic event again. It's important on so many levels, and it's a true community event. From the library offering up the parking garage as the venue to the businesses sponsoring food for volunteers... It takes almost 100 volunteers to put this thing on, not to mention everyone selling gear and local vendors. 
It involves the town from every single angle, and we are so excited to see everyone on Saturday for the main sale day. Swapping festivities kick off on Friday with gear drop-off at the Wilkinson Public Library parking garage from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Those looking to sell gear can still buy tags at drop-off. On Saturday, November 11th, the swap is in full force from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There are still some volunteer shifts available with the perk of shopping the pre-swap. Go to koto.org to sign up. Sunday is for gear and check pickup with the after the swap swap on Monday. In addition to the main swap event, Saturday is the last chance to purchase a ski pass at the local price. Telski will be selling passes at the Oak Street ticket office on Friday and Saturday. Saturday will also see the 8th annual Freestyle Free Ride at the base of Chair 8, with music from DJ Castle. The holidays are coming, and the Grand Mesa on Compagre and Gunnison National Forests want you to be prepared. Christmas tree permits are officially available on the G-Mug. With a permit, tree cutting is allowed on G-Mug land, with the exception of wilderness, scenic pullouts, timber sale areas, recreation areas, campgrounds, and trailheads. Trees must be a maximum of 20 feet, with a maximum stump height and a diameter of 6 inches. Individuals are allowed to select a subalpine fir, Engelman spruce, lodgepole pine, bristlecone pine, Douglas fir, ponderosa pine, pinion pine, or juniper, although there may be some local species restrictions. In addition to a fun tradition, GMUG officials note cutting a Christmas tree can help improve forest health. Removing densely populated small trees helps other trees grow and can open areas that provide forage for wildlife. Christmas tree permits are available at the Norwood Ranger District Office or at recreation.gov. State lawmakers are headed back to Denver. On November 9th, Governor Jared Polis called for a special session of the state legislature in order to address spiking property tax rates following the failure of Proposition HH on the state ballot this week. HH was a tax relief scheme put together by Polis and Democratic lawmakers, which would have capped property tax increases while allowing the state to keep a portion of Tabor refunds. It was in response to skyrocketing property values in Colorado and a concern that property owners on fixed incomes would be forced to forfeit their homes. Voters rejected HH at the ballot on Tuesday. Polis has asked lawmakers to return to the Capitol for a special session beginning on November 17th in order to address the spiking tax rate, which some Democratic lawmakers describe as a looming crisis. It takes at least three days to pass a bill in the legislature, and lawmakers return with no clear plan or proposal in sight. Meanwhile, municipal governments and special districts across Colorado are finalizing their 2024 budgets, which would be affected by reduced property tax collections. A new study has found inequities in the delivery of federal benefits for indigenous coal miners in the western U.S. who are suffering from black lung disease. As Chris Clements of KSJD reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, the study is shining a light on an under-researched subject. 
The study, conducted by National Jewish Health Respiratory Hospital, says indigenous miners in states like Arizona who have black lung are less likely to receive federal benefits using current standards for lung function, as opposed to standards specifically geared towards indigenous people. It also provides evidence that indigenous miners experience more rapid lung decline as they age than non-indigenous miners. Cecile Rose is a pulmonologist with National Jewish Health in Denver and an author of the study. It's vital that that community get some particular attention because there is very little information on indigenous workers in general and coal miners in particular. According to Rose, much of the data for the study was compiled during screenings conducted over 16 years near the Navajo Nation. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements. Snow is beginning to fall high in the Rockies, forming the main water supply for the Colorado River. KUNC's Alex Hager talked with climate and water management experts about what this winter will bring and what's at stake. James Dilzell is walking through a soggy wetland, snapping twigs as he navigates the banks of a high mountain creek. Pine forests up above us, um, some aspens in the background, um, and just abundant sun as we love to have here in Colorado. Dilzell runs the Eagle River Watershed Council near Vail, Colorado. This sun-soaked tangle of streams and ponds will soon be buried in snow. And the snow that falls here melts and sets off on a long journey. This ultimately goes into the Colorado River Basin. It, it, this helps supply water for 40 million people, and the issues that we feel within our watershed here in the headwaters just get amplified as we go downstream. The water that flows out of taps in Denver, Phoenix, and Los Angeles, the irrigation water for sprawling fields of crops across the Southwest, the vast majority of it starts as snow high in the Rockies. Two-thirds of that starts in the state of Colorado. So what will this winter bring to the state's mountains? I can tell you that it's anyone's guess. Becky Bollinger is the assistant state climatologist. Being Colorado, the very beginning of the water year, it's a big crapshoot. You know, we don't have a lot to go on. She says it's hard to tell because the indicators we do have don't actually tell you much about Colorado. This winter will bring El Nino conditions. It's a region-wide weather pattern that means more precipitation in the northern part of the western U.S. and less in the south. But the dividing line is Colorado. Interestingly enough, it shows equal chances of above average, below average, or near average conditions. But there is one thing we do know, the impact of last winter, which brought record-breaking snow to the mountains. That saturates the ground so thirsty soil doesn't soak up snowmelt next spring, helping runoff get to the places where people control and collect water. Even though we're kind of at the beginning of the race, we're not starting further back from the starting line than we should. And all that data about weather in Colorado, people are keeping an eye on it from far away. We watch the snow patterns. We cheer when there's big snowfalls in the Rockies. Cynthia Campbell is an advisor to the Water Department in Phoenix, Arizona. We watch it throughout the winter. Um, it's kind of like, you know, October 1st comes around and it's game on. And lately, the winter weather has been fickle. That makes it harder to predict how much water will be available in reservoirs that supply Phoenix and other big cities far from the mountains. We have, even over the past decade or two, really seen how this system can seemingly turn on a dime. And a quick turn could cause a lot of trouble for the people who manage the Colorado River. 
Kyle Rohrink is director of the nonprofit Great Basin Water Network. We cannot be naive to think that, oh yeah, we had a big winter, we're out of this. Two or three dry years will bring us back to the, to the brink. After years spent in emergency mode, with water policymakers scrambling to come up with short-term deals that compensated for dry years and shrinking reservoirs, the situation is looking a little better. But Rohrink says a lot hangs in the balance with future water management. I am just hoping, praying, crossing the fingers that decision makers on the inside this time will not take the easy route. And he hopes their hard work will result in new, more permanent river sharing rules that can outlast the ebb and flow of each winter. And as snow starts to stack up in the mountains, we'll know soon just how urgently they're needed. I'm Alex Hager. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Friday should see increasing clouds with a high in the mid-40s. Friday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 20. Saturday, expect sunny skies during the day and clear skies at night. The high is around 45 degrees with a low in the mid-20s. This has been the news for Thursday, November 9th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.